Hi, this is Ken Doherty, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole from Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gates with a shot! Welcome to episode 44 of the Red Devil Talk podcast. I'm delighted to say I'm joined this morning by the 1997 World Snooker Champion and, more importantly, huge United fan, <laughs> Ken Doherty. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, very well, Jimmy. Thanks. Very well. Looking forward to the new season, I must say. Getting a bit excited now. Yeah, it's If we get Varane, it looks like uh, they're talking to Varane, which is good news. Sancho is in the bag, so... Uh, Baran would be a great addition, and then you never know. You never know. The Sancho medical today, I believe, and apparently United are discussing terms with Varane, so that would be great to get done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, as I said, if they, if they get though, well, I mean, Sancho, the deal is already done, so he just has to pass his medical, which I'm sure he will do, no problem. So uh, then Varane uh, would be a great addition to the back four, for sure. He's very cool, very calm. Very experienced player, World Cup winner, uh, and he's uh, played. You know, he, he's always he always looks good, like when he's playing for Real Madrid or when he's playing for France. He's he's a class player, you know, and he's only twenty eight. I want to ask you about the Euros. Football didn't come home. The Italians. Oh no, no, it went Italians, to Rome instead of home. <laughs> yeah, the Italians ripped up the script. I thought, mm. you know, England couldn't have started better in fairs. Yeah. Italy struggled to impose themselves on the game the first mm. half. They gave the ball away. I thought mm. England nullified their threat really well in the first half. Ultimately, as often has been the case, penalties, England's shortcomings. What was your assessment of what we saw on Sunday night? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I was excited for it. I was hoping England would win, to be, be honest. You know, I, I mean, I. Uh, you know, uh, there's a few Man United players on there and you watch them every week and I thought it would have been great. I mean, since 1966, they haven't won anything. So it would have been great for the, the whole nation. You know, everybody was getting very excited here. And, um, you know, I've been in England now for the last couple of months and, you know, there was a great build up to it and a great excitement. And particularly during this doom and gloom of the pandemic and all that, you know, that sort of lifted a lot of spirits of a lot of people over here. So... Uh, yeah, I was disappointed. I mean, I just thought they scored early, uh, which they weren't expecting. And they tried to, instead of like going for the juggler and trying to score another goal, it was almost like they tried to do an Italian job on the Italians, which was like not what you do, try and hold on to a 1-0 lead because they let Italy grow and grow and grow into the game. I mean, it, Italians, they've got some class players, you know. And uh, I just thought they 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 sort of let them give them the ball too much. They had too much possession, Italy, and um, ultimately it came down to penalties. So they could have, you know. I, I just thought England had a great opportunity to really just go for it, you know, and and try and because they've got the they have some really good players, really good fast players, really good wingers that could have really troubled that back four, but they didn't really just let themselves go. I thought they, they were a little bit timid in the final and it ultimately cost them penalties. It's always, a, a, you know, it's exciting. I mean, I was loving the penalties. I must say it was very, very exciting. Uh, but it's very hard on the players who, who miss, you know, and particularly the young guys like Saka, 19, you know, uh, 20, Rashford, you know, and, and I think Sancho's 20 as well, is he? I mean, three young boys, you know. I just think, I don't know about you, but I thought, Southgate, he hasn't made many mistakes during that championship at all. You know, very articulate, very meticulous in his preparation. But I just thought bringing those two guys on with not even a kick of, of the ball, yeah. it was too late. He could have brought Mount off a lot earlier. Uh, he should have brought them on for at least 10 minutes, I thought. You know, at least one of them. And anyway, and uh, giving them a run and at least get a kick of the ball. It's like, 
like taking a penalty without a kick of the ball is like me trying to pot a long black, just getting my cue out of case and just going for it like a pressure shot. And if you, you pot it, you know, if you miss it, you're out, you know, and if you pot it, you're out, you're, you're still in, but you haven't won. Like, so that's exactly what it's like. You need to have a little bit, and he just didn't have any time, you know, and it was too much pressure. Uh, for the young boys. Why didn't Sterling take a penalty? Why didn't Grealish take a penalty before them? You know, why didn't even Luke Shaw could have taken... He's a good dead ball player. He could have taken a penalty uh, before these lads. I think that, that would have been... That would have made more sense, you know? You mentioned the young lads that missed the penalties there. Mm. I, I have to confess, Ken, I shout for United fans every week. Sorry, United mm. players every week. So it's hypocritical, but I couldn't yeah. bring myself to want England to win. That yeah. said, that said, I thought it was really difficult to watch the young lad crying at the end and the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. use they've been getting on Twitter since. I think it's absolutely yeah, shocking. Yeah, I mean, the sickening, sickening racial abuse of like some of the stuff that's been on Twitter is just shocking. It really is, you know. And uh, I think the boys are better off not actually opening their Twitter accounts, you know, like for at least a couple of weeks until the new season starts and uh, just sort of not even paying any attention to it because it is, it's vile. You know, it's it's horrible, it's vile, it's sickening. And it's not what, like, you know, sport is about. It's not really what society is all about. It's just a few, like, idiots, you know what I mean? Uh, and there's plenty of them out there. And they just, uh, they don't know where to draw the line. It's just uh, ignorant idiots that, uh, I don't know, crave probably a bit of attention for themselves by, by uh, you know, vilifying you know, young lads who are doing their best and playing for the country. There surely has to be a better process whereby Twitter or Facebook can verify <laughs> these individuals. Like, mm. can't just make fake accounts with no profile pictures and just start abusing people because of the colour of their yeah, skin. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, exactly. I think there has to be some sort of clampdown. There has to be some sort of, like on some other sites where you have to actually, where you set up accounts like... Uh, you have to actually send in your driver's license or your passport or something like that. And that, that stops all that abuse. I know there's a freedom of speech thing that Twitter sort of hide behind, uh, but it's wrong. It's, there's a lot of badness uh, in Twitter. And there's a lot of badness in social media. There's a lot of good to it. Uh, I mean, I like being on social media myself. And I, uh, I do like looking at stories and different things, but nice things. I don't like looking at those sickening things. It's horrible, like, you know. On a more positive note, the Euros in general, I thought was mm. very enjoyable, high quality. Mm. There was the Spain, Italy game yeah, yeah. in the semi-final. There was France, Switzerland, quality, individual brilliance, goals. There so many. Own yeah. goals. There was penalty misses. Yeah, 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 everything, yeah, yeah, I thought. Yeah. It was a fantastic championship. I really, uh, I was really enthralled by the whole lot. You know, it was great. I mean... You know, on Monday and now today, you know, you, you'd say, oh, there's no football on today. There's no match to look forward to, you know, because every day for four weeks, there was a match to look forward to. Uh, two matches sometime, of course. Um, so that, that it's, it's disappointing now that there's no matches on. But I suppose the football season is not long away. But I thought the championship was brilliant. You know, it's great to have the crowd back as well. That made a big difference. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, there were some great teams. I mean, the Italians were fantastic. You know, you have to give it to them. They they played brilliantly throughout. And uh, delighted for Mancini, in a way, you know, and Viali and all that all that background uh, staff. And you, you saw what it meant to the Italian players as well, you know. And, and they were great players. I mean, that Benucci and Cellini at the back. I mean, two guys, 35 and 36, and they just played... 120 minutes, and they're like old style, like uh, centre backs, like you know what I mean, centre halves. They're real old school, you know. And there's no messing with them. They, they're great tacklers. They, they get their bodies in the way. They give it everything. And I was delighted for them in a way, you know. I mean, you know, I wanted England to win, but when you see Italy win, you know, it was just fantastic for them as well. It's just a great, a great spectacle, you know, and a great championship. And I thought the coverage was brilliant, both on ITV. I didn't see any of the RT because I said I've been over here. So ITV and BBC was fantastic. I thought Roy Keane was just, uh, yeah. you know, gold in, in the, uh, you know, in the studio with the other boys. I thought he worked really well with Ian Roy and Gary Neville. And, and even Vieira in there, you know, as, as quiet as he can be and, and a little bit more reserved than the likes of Keane and the others. But it was a quite a nice matchup, you know. And Soonis, when he was in there as well, was very, very good. 
but I thought Kane was a different class. You know, I, I just love listening to him when he's in the studio. There's always great value in mm. anything Roy says, and I think the good cop, bad cop dynamic with Gary Neville is really entertaining yeah. to watch. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. You know, and that's that's what you need. Uh, and he's straight, Roy. You know what I mean? I mean, you didn't see him jumping up and down when England scored. He was just that. He was more concerned about his cup of tea, you know. Uh, but um, yeah, now he's just uh, he's straight. He sh- he shoots from the hip. He says what's on his mind, and uh, more times than not, uh, you know, you'd you'd agree with him, you know. And the other guys sort of they tiptoe around like the the different like controversial subjects. Roy Kane doesn't straight in there like a red rag to a bull. Like you know, he's brilliant. You met Roy, I believe, didn't you, when you won the World Championship? Yeah, I met him a few times. I met him a few times. I mean, he's uh, I met him when he was playing for. Manchester United, you know, and I met him, of course, when he was playing for Ireland. I, I got drunk with him uh, once or twice and uh, during the days. And then uh, he's come to the World Championship a few times as well. You know, we've gone out for dinner and that. He's a, he's a good lad. He loves the snooker. He loves coming to the World Championship final. You know, he gets, uh, I get, you know, tickets or passes into the, and he loves, uh, he just loves coming. I think he just loves sport in general and, and different aspects of all of all sports. Like, you know, but uh, yeah, he's, he's, he plays snooker with his mate, he tells me, like probably once a week or something like that. But uh, yeah, he's a good lad, Roy. Good lad. Moving to UFC 264. I know you watched it. Yeah. Conor McGregor yeah. defeated oh, again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A freak leg break, it has to be said. Do you think yeah. McGregor oh. will return? Uh, oh, I mean, I, I think he definitely will. He has to return because, I mean, he can't go out, uh, you know, on, on, on something like that. I mean, it was shocking to see, actually. You could see exactly, mm. you know, once he went back on his ankle, like leg, it's just, uh, and they reckon he, he's, because of one of his kicks, he might have, like, he started, Poye did say, say he heard a little crack, like, so it made have, that may have started it, you know, or precipitated it. But, um, yeah, I mean, he's very exciting. He's so exciting to watch, you know, and he gives it all the trap and all that. Sometimes it goes a little bit over the top, uh, but that's just the way he is. You know, he's, uh, he's a great fighter. And whatever you think about him or is off, sort of out of the octagon antics, that's, that's up to you. But, um, yeah, he's still, he's, he's box office, you know, when it comes to uh, MMA and uh, you know, he pulls in the crowds. I mean, you saw that arena. It was absolutely jammed. And I, I can't imagine how many people were watching it on TV or, you know, pay-per-view, but it would have been an awful, awful lot. So uh, he's good for MMA. I think MMA need him as much as uh, he needs them. And uh, I'm sure he'll be back. I don't think he's going to finish on that top of note. He wants to finish on a high, you know, and I'm sure he'll... Uh... It's going to take him a long time, though. You know what I mean? That's a few defeats now. You know, he's lost to Khabib, he's lost to Poye twice in a row now. So uh, he'll be like a wounded animal, but I'm sure like great champions, they, they'll always come back, you know, and I hope he does. You mentioned the defeats there since 2016, one victory in four. I mean, he struggled mm. to fight consistently. Given mm. his wealth, his status, his rise, mm. do you think the desire is still there as it was? Do you think he's oh, still yeah. as hungry as he was? I think so. I think he is I, because he loves that limelight, you know. So no matter how much money you sort of make, they can't give him the same buzz as getting into that octagon, you know. Same with Floyd Mayweather, and the same with Pacquiao before he sort of, uh, you know, before he really sort of uh, he hasn't even retired yet, Pacquiao. But I mean, no matter what they have, they still it's hard for them to hang up the gloves because they. They love that buzz of getting into the ring or getting into the octagon, whatever it may be. I mean, Khabib walked away, you know, 26 and 0, wasn't he? Mm. And uh, that's very, very difficult to do. Very, very difficult to do when you do it at the top. But he probably, he probably said, look, I had enough. I don't want to train anymore. I've got enough money. Some people can do it, but others cannot. And I think because of McGregor, because of his personality, he will find it hard to, to, uh, to give it up no matter how much money he has. And particularly, he won't want to give it up the way he lost on, on Saturday night or Sunday morning. He'll want to uh, finish on a high, as I said, and, and go out in a blaze of glory. That that would be sort of fitting for him, I would say. From the conversations we've had over the years, you've always referenced growing up in Renly. You've always mm. placed a lot of emphasis on respect. 
you mm. put a lot of emphasis on your upbringing and you, you've often commented mm. you are raised with respect. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah. For me, when I hear McGregor post-fight mm. and he's slagging off Dustin Poirier's wife. Yeah, 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 cringing, yeah, yeah. cringing, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, yeah. what do you make of that other side of, of yeah. him? Yeah, well, that's the side, that's the side I don't like don't like that so that's what i'm saying like whatever you may think of of his antics you know outside the ring i i don't like it i i like it when he sort of when he sort of is there something to do with the fight or you know but when he starts like he, he goes below the belt quite a lot and i don't like that you know as i said you, you have to have some sort of respect and dignity as well and if you don't have that you don't really have anything so uh, i wish he would curb that a little bit more I like watching him in the ring, but the other stuff, uh, that's not my style at all, you know, and I don't like that. Uh, and I wish he would sort of just uh, be a little bit more dignified, take his defeat like a man and say, look, I'll be back. He doesn't have to uh, stoop so low in his comments uh, the way he did against Poirier. I'm not, it's not my style. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's no doubting his sporting mm. talents, but sometimes I wish he would be a little bit more humble. But then again... Mm. Maybe he needs that. I don't think that makes it right, but I think he needs no. that to G him up. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe you know, to get himself going. But I think, I think he's he's created that image for himself now, and he plays it up, and that's the way he is. That's what's got him where he is today. That's what's made him so popular. Uh, most of that trash talk has made him popular because the other guys don't do it, but you see, you don't see them like headlining and, and, and pulling in the numbers he does. So that's what's made him a very rich man, as well as sort of his, his, his ability to, as a, as a great fighter. Uh, but I think the trash talk and the variable that goes with it has made him more of a character and more, and he's got more of a following because of it. So he sort of lives and dies by that sort, you know. It reminds me a little bit, a little bit of Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie doesn't mm. go that far. He doesn't. No, doesn't go that far. But some of his comments are interesting, to say the least, in press conferences. Yeah. O'Sullivan, another character, the controversial nature of his persona. Yeah, it's part of the draw, isn't it? I suppose for fans. Absolutely, they love to hear the controversial comments or press conferences or antics. You know, like I mean, when I grew up watching snooker, I loved Alex Higgins. You know, now Alex Higgins. Is personality and my personality are on different ends of the, of the spectrum but I enjoyed watching him play you know he was always exciting to watch you know and just like Ronnie O'Sullivan just like Jimmy White Jimmy White you would never hear that those type of comments in a press conference but he was still like people loved him because of the way he played and he knew he was a bit of a wild boy uh, but Ronnie O'Sullivan has sort of taken that to a new level now where his sort of his antics and his comments and what he does away from the table as opposed to being on the table. And he's sort of just as sort of complex and interesting and, and sort of a, just as much of a character when he gets into the press conference as he is that when he is on the table and he's a genius on the table. So people sort of love listening to his controversial comments. They love listening to what he's going to say next. They hang on every word. He's not going to, come out with the usual sort of diatribe that a lot of others would come out with or you know what I mean uh, but he he would come out with some diatribe but you know it might be aimed at the officials it might be aimed at certain people uh, but he doesn't stoop as low as McGregor he doesn't go that far but uh, he has come out with some stuff over the years of course you know moving to United uh, obviously top of the table in January Never really looked like winning the league or challenging. I don't think the mm. season kind of faded out for them. It was so poor. There is defeat to Leicester, Liverpool. There's the Europa League final defeat. In general, yeah. what was your assessment of how United season went? In the yeah, end? I mean, it was, there was a, there was a big improvement from from last year for sure, and they closed the gap a little bit. But they sort of they give away so many silly points. You know, uh, I think Sheffield United. You know, the, the games at home, the Crystal Palace at home, Sheffield United. Um, some of the points that they dropped away from home as well. But mostly, I, th I thought their form at home was like pretty poor, you know. They scraped a, a lot of wins, but they weren't very impressive. They were more impressive away from home than they were at home. Uh, and I think their home form, which they should be normally 
90% you should you think they should be winning. And they dropped a lot of points, you know, and it cost them in the end. They were poor uh, towards the end. It was like they sort of ran out of a bit of steam. And the Europa League final, well, that just topped everything off. Like, you know, I mean, they, they should have been. They're a much better team than Villarreal. They should have been way out of woods before the penalty shootout came about. And uh, it just didn't happen for them. And that was disappointing. So, uh, no trophies again. Uh, so, hopefully, with these couple of additions, that things will improve. And um, you, might see, you might see a better run form. Uh, they have to try and close the gap to City and Liverpool. Because Liverpool aren't going to play as bad as they did last year. They'll have Virgil van Dijk back. And that will be a big thing for them. Um, so, they're going to have to play a bit of catch-up between Liverpool and Man City. But I think they'll be, be stronger this year. You know, the, some of the younger players will be more mature, the likes of Greenwood, Rashford. They've got this Sancho now. And if they can try and get Varane, they need a centre-half for sure. Uh, they could do with another really good midfielder, someone that would be better than Fred and McTominay. I mean, they've, they've been consistent, but they're not, they're not world-class players, I don't think, you know? They're not like Fernandes or not like Pogba. So, another really good midfielder. They need a Kante, someone like that. Uh, someone with a good engine, someone that could break up and, and let the likes of Fernandes and Pogba sort of have a free roam, reign around around uh, in front of the you know the top two or three players, uh, and then they 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 they'd have a chance then you know because they've got good players in most of position, most other positions, and then yeah, but they still need another couple of players I think. Yeah, obviously Pogba has a year mm. left on his contract. Mm. He might not sign. I think he holds. All the cards in this, to be honest, the ball yeah. is firmly in his court. Do you think he'll sign a new deal with the club? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, he's a class player. Whatever you think about him, he's a class player. You know, and when he turns it on, you know, he's uh, he's absolutely brilliant. You know, he can be frustrating for a lot of fans of his antics and stuff like that. But there's no doubt in his ability. You know, when he's when he's you know fully on it, he, he's he's hard to beat. Actually, you know. I think Fernandes is our outstanding player, but I think Pogba and him work really well. They have worked really well this season. They they have an understanding. Uh, and I, that's what I mean. If you get another player in the middle of that park with those two, I think you've got a really strong midfield. Really, really strong midfield. And uh, I just hope he signs because a United team without Pogba would be certainly worse off, you know. It'd be very, very hard to replace someone like him. I agree. I think he had a really... Impressive Euros. So I'm, I'm hoping he signs mm. that new deal. What have you made of Luke yeah. Shaw's transformation? I mean, he was criticised by yeah. Van Hal. He was criticised mm. by Mourinho for timekeeping attitude. Yeah, all his performances. I mean, at one point we should not forget that he couldn't actually get in the England team. Now yeah. he's in the team of the tournament. He's scoring the final. It's been some transformation, hasn't it? It has. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, when he when he signed from Southampton, I could you can understand a bit of criticism because he looked a little bit overweight. He was out of the pace of the game, and the managers can see that. We they can see a lot more than what we can, you know, on the periphery. And maybe in sort of in that type of way that the criticism has done him good because he sort of knuckled down. He looks like he's lost a little bit of weight. He's a lot fitter. And he sort of, he's knuckled down to say, well, I'm going to show you guys, you know, what I'm made of, you know, and why you know you'd have paid such big money for him. Uh, and, and he's definitely, he's transformed his whole game. Uh, he's got confidence. He's running down the wing. He's beating players. He's making some great crosses. The goal he scored for England was fantastic on the half volley. And, uh, yeah, he's become one of the best, you know, left fulls now in, in, in the country and possibly in the world. So uh, I, I just hope he keeps performing like that now for, for both United and, uh, you know, going forward, it should be, uh, you know, that, that, that's really good for us. Like, you know, and he's, he's full of confidence. And that, I think that Euros will make him an even stronger player for us next season. You mentioned this idea of criticism. Obviously, you reached mm. the heights of your profession, both playing mm. and in punditry now. Yeah, yeah. Is criticism something you relished? Uh, nobody likes getting criticised, but when you when you look back on it, uh, you would say, okay, this was justified. Certain criticisms were, were justified for sure, and it sort of uh, 
it's constructive criticism that you want to hear. You know, it's like someone who who really sort of uh, wants you to perform better, wants you to succeed, wants you to win more. Someone who's really behind you and is sort of criticizing, saying, well, you should have done this and not that. You should have played this better. You should have, you know, had a better sort of preparation for this match as opposed to what you were doing. You know, different things like that. Just to, you know, let you sort of understand from a different perspective of what they see because as a as a player and as a snooker player, as a sports person, you sort of a little bit tunnel vision, you know. And sometimes you need someone from outside your own little world, your own little box, to tell you, well, this is not right what you're doing. You should be doing this better. You know what I mean? Just to to give you a different perspective. And uh, and particularly when you if you lose matches that you probably shouldn't have done, or you took your eye off the ball, or you took a a, a certain player for granted. Like you thought you were going to win easy, you were too confident, you didn't give enough respect on the table. You know, these little things can creep into your game. And it, it's good to hear that from someone who's close to you, someone who's friendly with you. And, and sometimes even from the media, it's, it's not too bad, you know. As long as you can use it to your advantage, you know, and say, okay, well, that's, it's criticism. You know, you, people might think it's a negative thing, but you've got to turn that around into a positive thing and say, okay, yeah, you might, there might be some truth in that. I'm not going to do that again and see how that works. And and sometimes it, it sort of perks you up a little bit and say, and it sort of gives you that little bit of sort of needle that you'd probably need, you know, to get yourself going again and get back on the practice table and try and iron out those mistakes uh, for the future, you know? And I think that's exactly what's happened with Luke Shaw. I agree. I think his... I also think he's benefited from the arrival of Alex Tellez. I think the pressure mm. of another player vying for his position has also yeah. helped get the best out of him. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's what you need. In, in football, you need competition for places. You need to have pressure on you because if, it's, if you don't see anyone... I mean, Brandon Williams was never going to put too much pressure on, on Luke Shaw, even though he's a, he's a decent up-and-coming player. Uh, but I don't think he was really going to pressurise uh, Luke Shaw for that position. So um, he was good when he was like injured or needed a little bit of a rest. Yeah, but this Tellez is, is a different kettle of fish. You know, he's an international player. Uh, he's a good crosser of the ball. You know, he gets stuck in. He's a good tackler. Uh, so when he probably saw him, yeah, he had to up his game and he, he certainly has done that, you know, and that, that's a good thing. I think a big problem facing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer now is the goalkeeper position he has essentially mm. two number one goalkeepers yeah I think he needs to address that he needs to make a decision who's number mm. one is it David De Gea or is it Dean Henderson what's your view on that yeah one? I think Dean Henderson has done brilliantly since he came in I think David De Gea uh, has sort of uh, lost his confidence a little bit and when you lose your confidence as a as a sportsman you know it, it's sometimes and particularly I think for a goalkeeper, it, it's even more difficult. I mean, he never got close to any of those penalties even. You know, he hasn't saved a penalty in like, I don't know, 12, 13 penalties or maybe even more. Six no, years, I think. must be more. Yeah, yeah. Three he hasn't nights. saved the penalty. Yeah. I think he hadn't saved 10 penalties before the penalty shootout and there was 11 penalties in that. So that's 21 penalties and he hasn't saved one. Like, And that's quite that's quite a bad record, you know? Uh even, and for someone like him, who's a brilliant shot stopper, he's got great reflexes, great reactions. He's been a great servant for United, and and has been like our best player for a number of seasons. So uh, he's just lost a bit of confidence. You know, he's made a few mistakes, lost a bit of confidence, and uh, and because of that, we have a we're lucky that we have a really good, you know, alternative to him. And Henderson, I think, has done brilliantly. I think he deserves his chance. And until maybe, uh, you know, until he falters a little bit. And then at least we have competition. I think that's very, very important. I think half the problem, if United want to offload De Gea, I don't know if they do or if they don't, but if they yeah, did, yeah. he's on €350,000 a week. I mean, mm. what other club is going to come in, take De Gea and, and pay those wages? Yeah. I think a few years ago, I think you would have seen Real Madrid or, you know... Paris Saint-Germain or maybe Barcelona come in from, you know, no problem whatsoever, but not now. You know, things are a little bit different now. Barcelona look to be in real financial trouble. Real Madrid are in financial trouble, for sure. I mean, they've had to sell off a lot of land to raise money. Uh, 
some football clubs, PSG are okay because they've got a rich, a rich owner. Um, but the likes of uh, the German teams wouldn't be paying that type of money. You know, Bayern don't need them. They've got a really top quality goalkeeper. I don't know where else he can go, to be honest. And if he did go, he would certainly be reducing his wages. Or if he went on a free, he'd probably see out his contract and go on a free and then maybe still get his wages. There's not many clubs around the world who can afford him now. This podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves, giving fans a chance to look back through history. Classic Retro Shirts are on Instagram at ClassicRetros2 or you can visit their website at ClassicRetros.co.uk. To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts. Moving to snooker, uh, a fourth world crown for Mark Selby. Where do you think Mm. this places Mark Selby now in the conversation of the great players? Yeah, I think he's, uh, well, what a world championship it was. It was fantastic. Um, and I think he's, it was a great final as well, wasn't it? I mean, to go that close, uh, it could have gone even closer. You know, 18, 15 in the end, it, it could have easily been 17, 16. You know, he had to clear up to win on the black. Uh, but he's got tremendous bottle, Max Elby, you know, he, it, and that's his fourth world championship now. So he, he started level with John Higgins. He's a couple behind, like Steve Davis and Ray Reardon, of course. But I think he can still win another two or three. I mean, he could possibly equal uh, Stephen Hendry, uh, which would be hard to believe. I don't think. I think Hendry's a better player than him over the years when Hendry dominated the nineties. You know, but Selby is more sort of over the longer period of time could possibly. You know, I'm not saying he'd win another three. But, you know, you'd have to say that you could see him win another one or two at least, couldn't you? You know, it's going to be he's so hard to beat over the longer session. I mean, he's the, the old horse of the long road, like, you know, the old dog of the long road. And he's got every sort of facet of the game covered. And most importantly, he's got tremendous bottle, you know. Uh, he's a he's tremendous character on the snooker table. I mean, he might lose a very decisive frame. And he'd come back the next frame as if nothing had ever happened. I mean, he's a great sort of innate ability to just clean the slate and let's start again, you know. And sometimes snooker players can't do that very easily because, like, when they go into the next frame, they're thinking about the previous frame that they lost and should have won. And it takes, they can carry it for a couple of frames and it takes them a little while to, to get over it. But he has a great ability to get over it straight away. And that's a, a, that's a great asset to have. And, um, he has, as I said, he's got every part of the game covered. You know, the scoring, the safety. He's one of the toughest players, one of the greatest safety players I've ever seen and played. Like, you know, he's such a hard nut to play. Uh, he's so clever. Uh, he's a good scorer. He's a good long putter. He's got everything, you know. And it's, he, you know, I was sort of used to call him the torturer, you know, because he, he does take his time. You know, he does take his time. And that can that can upset a lot of players, you know, who like to get into the free. So O'Sullivan labelled him the torturer at one stage, and he did. He tortured O'Sullivan on a few occasions, you know, because O'Sullivan does not like playing him. And, um, you know, I, I think he's going to be around for another number of years and can see him win another few world championships. He's often criticised, as you mentioned. He takes his time. Mm. He's booed walking out into the ring. <laughs> he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Granted, it was yeah. only probably a small proportion of fans. Mm. What do you make of all that? Now, my opinion is fair enough. I, I don't dove to John Murphy's family, I think it was. Yeah. Bit... <laughs> but there is, as the old Irish saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I mean, not everyone Absolutely. has to win a game of snooker playing like Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, I don't think it was called for. They loved the underdog. You know, and they wanted to see a really close final. They want because Morphy was coming out, he was getting the crowd going, he was giving it the fist pumps, which was fantastic. I mean, that's what you want to see. Um, you, you know, we had the crowds back at this World Championship for the first time in like 18 months nearly, or a year, uh, definitely over 12 months. And it was just absolutely brilliant, you know. 
And uh, Morphy was really relishing that. You know, he was getting the crowd going. He was coming out, giving it the fist pumps. And they sort of, the crowd really rallied behind that. And the fact that when he was coming back at, at Selby, they got behind him even more because they, they loved to see a comeback. They wanted to see it go right to the distance. They were, they were really entertained. He had a guy on one side who was taking his time. And then you had a guy on the other side who was like going for everything. He was winning frames really quickly. He was quite flamboyant in the way he was playing. And they had a great sort of uh, parallel sort of rivalry, you know, but on different sort of, they were almost like the antithesis of, of each other, you know, complete opposites, you know. Uh, but a great matchup at the same time. And uh, obviously the crowd were more on Sean Murphy's side. And uh, I didn't like the booing, though. I've never heard that before at a, at a snooker match. That was the first time. But... Uh, in a, in a sort of weird type of way, it was quite it was quite good as well, you know what I mean? Uh, because it sort of added a little bit more spice to the final. Uh, but I I didn't like the bit on but you know I think if they just shouted a bit more for Murphy, that would have been fair enough, you know. I actually had Sean on the podcast recently. We were discussing the fist pumps. I thought it was brilliant to watch. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think he gained a lot of new fans over the two weeks. We, yeah, we saw, we saw a side to him we haven't seen before. Yeah, absolutely, and you know something. Uh, I love it. I mean, I really love it. I wish, uh, you know, like back in the, you know, through the 90s that I did a bit more of it myself. Like, you know what I mean? I didn't do enough of it and I should have done uh, because people like to see it, you know? And it wasn't sort of the done thing like when I was sort of in my pomp, you know, uh, throughout the, the 90s. Uh, and not a lot of players were doing it. But Ebden was the first one really to do it in 94. Uh, and I wish a lot of us had definitely me I wish I had done it a bit more just to get the crowd going because it is it is fantastic and it's a great feeling as well when you're a player and you've won a really you know good match or a good frame even and you give it the fist pumps and you can hear the, the crowd getting behind you it does give you a great boost it gives you a lift you know and there's you know that's hard to it's hard to sort of replace and you need that sometimes and uh Definitely Morphy was feeding off it very, very well indeed. Do you think you're going to introduce it into your game? Oh, definitely, yeah. Definitely. I'll, I'll be down cartwheels and fist pumps now, you know what I mean? I can't wait to see it. I'll be giving it McGregor. I'll be giving it McGregor sort of, uh, you know. I won't be slagging off players' wives or anything like that, but uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> I might take a leap out of McGregor's book. <laughs> The last time we spoke, you told me you were relocating to spend more time in London to practice. I understand you were mm. in Sheffield recently. You told me yeah. one more aim or one more appearance at the Crucible was the aim. Mm. Is that still a goal that gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to try. I mean, this pandemic year has been quite difficult uh, for everybody. Um, but I'm just going to try and, uh, yeah, I've got one more year in the circuit. I'm going to spend a bit more time here in Sheffield where I am now. I'm going to practice at, at Things Academy and, uh, you know, just try and give it 100% and, and see how it goes. But, yeah, one more appearance at the Crucible would be nice. And, uh, yeah, just see how it goes, basically. But give it, do a lot of practice and try and give it 100%. And then, you know, we'll make a decision then at the end of the season. I think over the last couple of years and... I'm not just saying this because we're talking right now on the podcast. I think you've become a really fine broadcaster. I think you're insightful in the commentary box. But what I want to know is, was that transition from player to pundit something you had prepared for? Or were you nervous about it? Yeah, no, I, I, it wasn't something. It's not something I don't think you can really prepare for. Uh, but I've been doing it now for about 10 years, I think. And... Uh, no, I just, I grew up listening to Ted Lowe, you know, the old Pop Black and those, for those of you watching in black and white, the brown is next to the blue, you know, the Ted Lowe, he was fantastic, whispering Ted Lowe. Uh, and I think uh, just being in the commentary box with the likes of Dennis Taylor and John Virgo, uh, the sort of the older guys, and even the great Willie Thorne, you know, uh, you learn a lot from those guys, you know, and the likes of myself and Stephen Hendry, and now Alan McManus uh, would have learned a lot from those. And, of course, when you're in the studio then with John Parrott and Steve Davis, 
you know, we all get on very, very well. You know, we always have a good time and we sort of socialize together afterwards. Uh, we enjoy each other's company. We we have a great laugh. We play golf together. You know, we, we drink together and we go out and have meals together. And it's just a, it's a really nice little sort of group that we have. And um, I've just learned a lot from those guys, to be honest, you know, the way they tell a story, the way they try and create a little bit of drama or or talk a little bit about what's gone through the player's mind, you know, when he's on a break or when he's sitting in his chair. Because a lot of the game really is psychological, you know, because you've got a lot of time to spend on your own, to think like when you're in the chair, the other guy's at the table and what you're trying to process and stuff like that. So you're trying to relate to the viewer what the what the what the person is feeling what what was i feeling when i was sitting in the chair when i was at the table and i'm playing hendry or i'm playing o'sullivan and what would that player be feeling right now and you're trying to replicate that uh or trying to analyze it and, and, and explain to the viewer of what they're going through i think that's the best way to to sort of describe it you know you touched on the psychology of the game there as mm. you know that's mm. a huge interest of mine I remember our very first conversation. You told me you visualized lifting the world title. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to know: is mental practice something you still engage in to this day? Yeah, I still, I still like it. I think it's very important in, in the part of the process. Uh, but yeah, it's very true. I mean, a, a lot of people would talk about visualization and a lot about seeing the shot and playing it. Even, you know, like, you know, you could just like pretend you're in a match you know like even when you're not at the table or you're away from the table even you're back in your hotel room and you sort of go through shots in your mind you know when you're lying down on the bed and you're just trying to relax you know when you go through frames against a player and you go through shots and you're you're sort of down on the frame winning shot it might be a long shot it might be a black up spot might whatever it might be but you can see yourself potting it potting it potting it, potting it. and that's very important you know and I know it sounds a little bit silly to, you know, well, how, you know, how does that help you? Well, it does help you when you're down on the shot. If you keep creating those positive sort of images in your mind, when it comes to the shot, you'd say, well, I've, I've done this in my mind, you know, quite a lot. I've done it in practice quite a lot. Let's just put it into process now. And it certainly does help. But, uh, you know, winning that world championship, yeah, I visualize me myself like lifting the cup up and giving it a big kiss just the way Higgins did in 82 the way Dennis Taylor did in 85 that like they sort of were huge inspirations on my career and uh, it really helped me against Hendry because I felt so relaxed I could see myself winning the cup even though probably not 90 percent of, of people thought that I was going to lose because Hendry had, you know he hadn't been beaten in six years at the Crucible so but I could see myself lifting that cup and giving it a big kiss. That was my chance, and, and that helped me uh, in the end to, to, to get over the line and, and, win the, and win the World Championship. There are actually a lot of studies done with golfers and dart players. Mm. They utilize imagery, and it actually has been shown to increase uh, shot accuracy. So it is definitely mm. something that I think... Oh, yeah. More people yeah, should look to incorporate into their game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely agree. I think you know, there's different elements of of every sport. You know, you know, the physical side. Uh, you know, the the uh, the technique. You know, and and then of course, you know, the mental side is huge. You know, of course, you need a very good technique. You need a sound technique. Um, you need to be, you know, in certain sports physically well as well i think it does help okay not so much in snooker but certainly the bit of fitness and physical well-being is going to help you in the long run particularly in the in the longer matches uh but certainly the mental fortitude is so strong you know and particularly in our game uh of having confidence you know because players confidence goes up and down having the confidence to take on the big shot having the bottle as well to be able to to go through with it and you know, complete a framing and clearance when you need it, when you're right under the cushion. All these things are all down to your mental side and your ability to, to stay in the moment, to stay positive, not let any sort of doubts creep in. Uh, and I think a lot of players should really open up into that aspect of the game and go and seek help about it or go and talk to other players and, 
players who've been there, done it, you know, and try and help them out because it, it certainly that little if it's an extra five percent to your game, it can mean the difference between getting over those four three, you know, final frame deciders or five fours or six fives, whatever they might be, ten nines at the crucible. That's the difference, you know, and it can make such a big difference to your season. When you get when you get over those final frame deciders throughout the season, you win one or two and all of a sudden your season could go that way. You lose one or two and then, you know, you can stay on a plateau and not go anywhere or you can go one way and that's down. So, yeah, any little bit of sort of, you know, psychological help uh, on the mental side would certainly uh, be a great benefit. Do you mind being asked about 97 or is it something you enjoy or is it kind of like, oh, oh I love it. Else? I love because it. <laughs> not from here, Ronnie O'Sullivan and he's like, I don't want to talk about records. I think that's strange to me. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, he's won so many. He's won six world titles, you know. I think he, he's won six worlds. He's won seven UKs, is it? You know, and he's won seven Masters. So he's won, like, our Grand Slam events, like, you know, Triple Crown events, like, 20 times, is it? It's an incredible record, you know. Uh, but, yeah, he's very blasé about it. But, hey, listen, I've only won one. And, you know, I can never get tired of, of talking about it. I don't like talking about the Miss Black on the 147 that everybody reminds me of. Uh, I could do without that, you know. But uh, you never get tired of talking about <laughs> your wins, for sure. And uh, winning in 97 was, yeah, the, you know, the greatest day of my life as a, as, a, as a snooker player. You know, it's something that, you, you know, when I first picked up the queue, and when I first got a little table from Santa, it was this size, you know, it was at the end of my bunk bed. And from the first time I, I got my two pound queue in Jason's, like when I was only 11 and I still have it to this day, like 40 years later. Uh, you know, you, that's all I wanted to do was to win the world championship and to, to win it in 97 and be, you know, the greatest player at the time uh, was the icing on the cake, you know, and uh, I never get tired of talking about it. And bringing the cup to Old Trafford was uh, that was uh, that had its benefits, you know, winning that world championship. So, you know, you can't uh, get better than that, you know. When Eric Cantona comes up to you and shakes your hand and says, "Congratulations, Mr. Doherty, and welcome to Old Trafford," <laughs> you know, for a United fan, <laughs> how good is that, you know? And if I hadn't have won the world championship, none of that would have happened. So it's been uh, it's been fantastic, you know. You mentioned that you've only got one world title. Mm. Your your words, not mine. My highest break is sixty three. So spare it hot for the rest <laughs> of us who, who will never get near it. Mm, yeah, well, you know, you have to start somewhere as well, you know. But uh, yeah, now it's been good to me. You know, I've, uh, it's been a it's been a, a great journey. You know, and I've really enjoyed it, and I'm still enjoying it. You know, and I. I uh, and that's one of the reasons why I do the punditry because when I'm not at the tournament, I'll be sitting at home watching it on the TV. And anyway, so I might as well be there in the tick of it and and still enjoying it up close. And you're getting paid to do to talk like that about snooker. You know, it doesn't get, it doesn't get much better than that either. So uh, yeah, I love I love the game. It's been great to me, and and I'm very grateful to it. And um, you know, it's given me uh, it's given me a, a good life. One more question before we move to the fan questions, if that's all right. Uh, the big question on this podcast is about high performance. You have achieved high performance. You've mm. won the world title. You've been in world finals. You've reached the pinnacle of your sport. What is high performance? What does it look like? What do you think are the key ingredients in achieving high performance? Oh, well, I mean, we, we did, you know, sort of, talk a little bit about it of course you you know the important ingredients are first of all you have to have a very good technique good sound technique you know you have to have good uh, mental ability you know and, and particularly you see there's a lot of players I'm, I'm talking about snooker now there's a lot of players in our sport who are very very talented you know they've got great technique they've got very very talented sometimes their mental ability lets them down you know, uh, they they can't cope with the pressure. They can't seem to be able to grasp when the pressure comes on that they can perform their best. You know, with their high performance, and there's something missing. There's a little sort of little cog in the chain is missing, uh, and that's and it can be only that small percentage. And that's what I'm talking about between winning and losing. And they're very very talented guys. You know, probably, you know, 
just as talented as, as I am and sometimes even be able to do things with a cue ball that I couldn't do. But, you know, I had an ability to be able to win frames or matches when I wasn't playing my best, you know. Uh, when I wasn't playing at my high performance, when I got to the high performance, when you were coming up against the O'Sullivan's or Hendry's, you ha- all the aspects of your game have to be in, in, in top notch, you know, and be able to play at that high performance level. Otherwise, you were losing, you know. You'd get away with it against some of the other players down the line. But when you came to the best players, the likes of Hendry, Higgins, uh, O'Sullivan, you know, Williams, uh, these were the best players that had ever played the game. And so, yeah. And when I was coming up against them, my level had to be top quality, you know. Uh, and if it wasn't, I was getting I was getting dished. Like so, high performance level is having all your aspects and having not saying that you have to be a hundred percent at everything. You don't, you know. But you have to have a good level uh, of obviously technique um, and the mental side as well is very very important, you know. As we as we touched on, you know, and. And being able to perform at that level is it's just uh, yeah it's it's difficult it's difficult for a lot of players uh, and it's easy for others you know and and uh, but you you have to build up to that and build up that with your confidence as well. Brilliant. I'm going to conclude with the listeners' questions. I received many. I'm just going to pull out four or five of them there. Um, mm. Aditi she asks: apart from playing style, what's the main difference you find in today's snooker players? What's the main difference? Uh, yeah, there's different. There is different styles, but I think compared to like sort of in the '90s, the players are much more aggressive now. As like they want to win frames in one visit, and I think the standard is a lot higher as well. Right down to the even to the the very bottom, from number one to number 128. Now the standard is is very very high, and uh, I think. As I said, the players want to, the, the breaks have improved, you know, the high breaks, the century breaks has improved over the years. Uh, and I think players have the ability now more so than they did like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago to, to win frames much more easier at, 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 uh, in, one, in, one, in one go, basically, and sort of uh, in one visit, as we, as we say in snooker terms. So there's, the standard has got a lot higher. And they're a lot more aggressive. They want to, as soon as they get on the blue or the black, they want to open the reds up and try and win the frame one visit. And that has been a big sort of plus on the, the likes of, you know, the way Hendry sort of revolutionized the game in the 90s. So Sullivan and Higgins and Williams, they brought that forward. And now you've got the likes of Judd Trump, Neil Robertson, you know, Ding Wee, Sean Murphy, all the great players who score very, very heavily. Uh, and that's the big difference now. Colin Healy wants to know what's your favourite venue to play at? Is it Goffs, the Crucible, or is there somewhere else? Mm. Uh, I think uh, for me, uh, obviously the Crucible, uh, but Goffs is a very, very uh, close second as well. I think when I came out uh, to play, I played O'Sullivan uh, in the final there. I played Hendry in the final there as well. I played O'Sullivan in the final, the atmosphere. I mean, it only holds 744 seats. Uh, I know that because I worked as an usher there for a few years. Uh, but when I played O'Sullivan, there must have been well over 2,000 people there. So there was about 1,300 people standing. Uh, and the atmosphere in that small, in that arena was just, they almost lifted the roof off. It was, it was quite incredible, you know. And uh, I remember John Higgins saying to me once, he said, you know, I've never, he's never witnessed an atmosphere like it because the likes of John Higgins was introduced to the crowd, Hendry, the players that were there that week who had still stayed around for the final, they were introduced out into the crowd before the likes of myself and Ronnie O'Sullivan were. So it sort of created a bit more of an atmosphere as well. Uh, but just the fact that I was 5-3 down to Ronnie, he eventually beat me, I don't know, 9-5 or something like that in the final. He played really well. Uh, but was subsequently uh, lost. Uh, you know, we failed his drug test afterwards, you know. So my name appeared on the trophy and I got the winner's check, but it didn't mean as much as sort of winning it or holding it aloft in front of the crowd. That would have been nice. But uh, yeah, the atmosphere there at Goffs was just quite incredible, you know. I don't think, even like, you know, the Crucible is great because it's the World Championship, but I think actually, for me, the atmosphere playing in front of your own crowd, you can't, you can't beat that, you know. It's just, uh, it's very, very special. 
Peter O'Donnell asks, given that the best players in the sport are now close to or over 40, how do we get kids back mm. into snooker halls? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, it's very difficult because a lot of the kids, including my own, they like gaming now. You know, they, they, they play these games like Fortnite or Call of Duty or whatever it may be. Yeah, they're on the phones. There's a lot more social media, of course, now than there was like, you know, in my day, there was no social media at all. Like social media. Uh, that was the Evening Herald or the, or the press, was it, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's very, very difficult to get them into the same clubs. The only way is by the fathers dragging them in, you know? And, and uh, I think what would be a good idea would for schools to be able to, you know, or for World Snooker or all the different organizations in the countries around the world, that's where snooker is very popular, is to try and get a snooker table in, into a school, you know, or even a six by three table, just to get the kids playing it early on. Uh, and you'd be able to use it as an alternative, like on a sports day, you know, when it's raining outside, that they can play ping pong or table tennis, or, or they, can play, they can play snooker. That's what they're doing in China. I mean, you went went into one college in China and they had a snooker room with like 20 full-size tables and like 10 half-size tables. And then they had like, you know, another room where there might be 20 like table tennis tables, you know, like, and snooker has become part of their curriculum. So it's an alternative sport to play on sports day. Uh, I think that's what we have to be doing in, in Ireland. And we, uh, you know, I put a couple of snooker tables into my old school in Western Row and Pierce Street. And it made such a big difference to the kids. Like, you know, the, like kids like were knocking on the door at half eight in the morning, getting in to have a game of snooker, you know, or a game of pool uh, before they went to their classes, you know. And, and it actually helped them in a way because, you know, it's sort of the teacher said, well, look, you're not playing snooker unless you're getting better. You know what I mean? They'd, they'd help them actually work better in class. And, and that was a good, really positive thing. Uh, and I think that would be a great initiative for Ribsa in Ireland to try and get snooker tables and send coaches in. You know, okay, it's going to cost a bit of money, but that could be help from the government, you know? And uh, I think that would be the only way that we can get snooker uh, kids back in into the snooker clubs. I'm going to pick two more. Richard Hill wants to know, what's your goal in the game now? Is it another tournament win or just enjoyment? Mm. Um, I definitely, you know, I, I definitely would love to win another tournament for sure. But I think the first part is to just in, enjoy it, try and give it, you know, give it 100%, as I said, which I'm going to try and do. Uh, you know, I've got one more year on my tour car and I don't want to just go out in a whimper. I still love playing the game, you know, I really do love playing it. And it's, it's, it's a lot harder as you get older, of course, uh, but it doesn't stop my love for the game. So I just want to uh, enjoy it and see where it takes me. But yeah, a goal would be to, to first get back up into the top 64, um, which I'll have to do to stay on the tour uh, and then try and, you know, I, I, I was one frame away from getting to the final of, a, of, a, of the Championship League last season to play Joe Trump in the final. If I had to beat Joe Perry 3-0, I was 2-0 up against him. I was in the final against Joe Trump. And that would have been really nice. And that would have given me a great boost. Uh, unfortunately, I lost. And then Corin Wilson played Trump and, and eventually won that. So, you know, sometimes the game is there. But other times, I'm just not as I was, you know. So uh, I like to find a bit more consistency, get a few more results, and then see what happens. But ultimately, not thinking too far ahead. Just I just want to go and enjoy the season and and, and uh, give as give it as much uh, as much as I can, you know. The final question, uh, Andrew Ennis. He asks, "Do you feel you play better on the televised match table under the bright lights with a big crowd present compared mm. to the non-televised tables with less fans?" Yeah, presence? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I struggle in the qualifiers, you know, when there's no atmosphere. It's very difficult concentration-wise, you know, when you're used to playing in front of the big crowds and the TV and stuff, and then you have to go back, you know, into the outer tables, nobody watching you, there's other matches going on. It's it's not the same, you know. So, But I, I do love the bigger stage, playing in front of the crowds on the TV. It does inspire me. I do play better for sure. You know, most of my better... 
the matches, even the last few seasons of being on the TV as opposed to being out the back, you know, with one man and his dog watching you, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I much prefer uh, the television and the cameras and, and sort of and a packed sort of auditorium. It's, you, cannot, you cannot beat that, you know. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your mm. class act. No problem. Anytime, sure. anytime, sure, Jimmy. Jimmy. I always love talking about uh, football and snooker and anyway, you know. Have a good uh, have a good year, have a good you season too. and let's hope uh, the Red Devils uh, play well as well this year. And good luck in your season. I wish you every success. Mm. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, M- thank you. Mind yourself. Cheers. All the best. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevil talkmedia at gmail.com.